Welcome to the Supplemental Podcast. We are two licensed therapists sharing our therapeutic and personal perspectives. We hope this clinical and applicable insight will inspire you and challenge you to grow. All right. So today we are talking about our our title for today is focused on the drinking, not the thirst. So this is um, hopefully an interesting thing for us to be talking about because there might be a lot to peel apart with it. And we're not actually talking about drinking, but we're going to talk about with this um, some underlying motive or reasons behind why we do the things that we do and um, and just kind of how that plays out. So. Um, I will kind of give this intro because I had heard this somewhere and Tegan, you said you've heard it too, right? So, um, I wish I could give someone credit. I don't know who said this, but it really stuck with me when I heard it. Um, because it, it, I don't know, it just kind of hit me that there's so much truth to that. So I'll start with the example, um, because it kind of fits the title, the example of an alcoholic. Um, so let's say there's somebody who struggles with alcoholism and they're drinking seven beers a night, every night. And on the weekends, maybe it's up to a whole case or whatever. I don't know. So we focus on their drinking and we don't pay attention a lot of times to what their thirst is. And, um, I think the understanding behind this is that we look at the behavior and we don't always look at the reasons behind that. So, um, not that, not that we're looking for an excuse, but really more of just like a deeper explanation of where someone might be coming from. So let's say this random alcoholic that I'm talking about has this struggle and they go to their alcohol every night because they just have gone through some deep loss in their life and being alone or, um, trying to process that grief is too much. And so they turn to booze and that gets them through it. So obviously that's not a healthier, effective coping mechanism, but it brings a whole lot more understanding to what that person's going through when you pay attention to the thirst or the, the why rather than just the drinking or the behavior. So, so, um, Tegan, tell me what, when you hear this or when you first heard this phrase, what are kind of your initial thoughts on it? My initial thought on it was and continues to be, as you talk about it, relapse and why relapse happen with any behavior whatsoever. Cause we won't really go at this from an addiction angle so much as just, we all have voids and we fill those voids with whatever the behavior might be, whether it be drinking, attention-seeking, shopping, social media scrolling, whatever the thing might be. And so any of those things could be, quote-unquote, the thirst. And if you just try and quit the thirst, cold turkey, which is totally effective sometimes. Sometimes it is, oh, I got into this bad habit. I need to change it. Let me try this, this, and this 21 days of such and such. Sometimes that works. And sometimes it doesn't work at all and people will relapse and go back to the same behaviors because they're filling a void. They're filling something that's there that has to be healed before the behavior can actually sustainably change over time. So that was kind of my initial thought with the quote is this idea of why people will go back to the very thing that they want to stop doing why they will relapse after wanting to quit an unhealthy behavior. And oftentimes relapse happens because the actual thing, the actual 
issue at hand isn't or hasn't been addressed quite yet. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad you said, um, like relapse is the, is the perfect word, even though this is not strictly about addictions because we can go back to bad habits of whatever it might be all the time. And, um, I like what you said that this really hits on, um, it fills some sort of void. Um, I think that is a huge part, which this is kind of further in what we're going to talk about, but we can get there now too, of the the really deep reasons of why we do what we do. And, um, there's lots of them. I'm not saying it just goes down to one, but so often I think it's like you just said, we're filling a void, you know? So in my basic generic example of the alcohol, um, the alcoholic, that person is filling that void of loneliness, right? But there can be so many other voids filled with, um, like you said, attention seeking or, the endless, endless scrolling or shopping or whatnot. Um, so I don't know what, if you have more thoughts on the void, do, can you maybe break down more what you think about where we get this void from, or is it like self-induced, so to speak, or do you think every person kind of, I don't know, has a void and we either find good ways to deal with it or not? What, tell me what your thoughts are. I think fundamentally, I think of voids as part of the human condition to some degree. And I mean, I have voids. I'm sure you have voids. All my clients have voids. And I think sometimes I don't know necessarily where they come from, but I think they're relatable because they're universal. And we can all relate to that sense of, oh, I, I when I'm with myself, I have this eerie sense of just not feeling right or I feel anxious or it feels like there's an emptiness or a hole or like I'm running from something and it's scary or I feel depressed and so all of those things might be how people kind of talk about voids but I would argue that we all have them just from experiences that we've had and a lot of the time I don't even know if they're conscious to us we can just kind of feel them or they're the thing that we work really hard to avoid making contact with, which is why people will stay busy or scroll often or do anything to preoccupy their minds so the minds and the emotions don't touch base with that really kind of vulnerable, void, empty spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is very well said. And you're right. We all have that. I, I totally agree with that. And I think, um, you know, in other episodes, we've talked about like trying to be vulnerable with like spouses or with close good friends or whatnot. And sometimes I think that is so hard because we can't be vulnerable with ourselves first. Right. And that's kind of the void that you're talking about, that whatever that certain void is for for each person um, we move to our behavior. We move to the, the quote unquote drinking, um, because to be in that vulnerable place and, um, acknowledge that void or sort of feel it is very scary and we stay away from it for sure. So can, um, maybe we can kind of go back and forth and share some other examples of this. Cause I, I presented the drinking one just as to, introduce it. But what are some other examples that come to mind about um, a way that someone might be focused on the drinking, not the thirst? Some some more like practical life examples of maybe things that you've seen come in your office or just ideas that you have. 
yeah, I'll spitball a few and then kind of join me in spitballing some because I think they're so varied. Um, but a couple that come to mind if I think through clientele over time, um, relationally, a void could be a person doesn't feel known or seen in their relationship and they feel very alone in their relationship. So they're constantly achieving or constantly making money or constantly going out with friends or constantly trying to lose weight. It's as though what isn't fulfilled in the relationship is being preoccupied with those other behaviors. So the thirst is really to have connection, attachment, and safety, but the behavior is to preoccupy and fill that void with everything. So it doesn't actually have to be felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a perfect example and whole whole nother episode. (laughs) Um, I think that is very true. And um, I don't know, an an example I have is my own mom. She'd probably be mad that I was sharing this, but it's true. And she's told me. Um, So when my parents were going through a divorce, she, um, she still is, but at the time too, she was a preschool teacher and, um, she does great at her job, but you know, that's a, um, job for like eight to three or whatever it is. And she would stay in her classroom till seven or eight o'clock at night, like every night. And I was at college. And so, um, I I remember eventually realizing I would talk to her on the phone and it'd be seven o'clock, seven o'clock at night. And she's at her classroom. And I'm like, mom, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, like I know sometimes there's extra work for teachers after school and that makes sense, but this is preschool. And I don't think you have loads of 10 page essays to correct. So why are you still there? You know? And eventually I, I talked to her about it and, um, it took her a while, but she finally kind of admitted my parents were going through this, um, issue or this hard time or whatnot. And so she was staying gone because she was avoiding the conflict that they were going through or avoiding the process that they were going through or whatnot. And that was her way to avoid slash cope and what, and, and kind of deal with it in that way. And so the thirst I think was, um, maybe it could have been multiple things for her, but maybe just, she had this uncomfortable feeling or was going through this difficult process of a divorce. And instead of being able to address that or, you know, pay attention to it or whatnot, she went to the avoidance of isolating herself somewhere else. You know what I mean? Um, which is sort of a very subtle way to look at it. Um, but it, it just kind of speaks to that. There's so many reasons behind our behavior. Which is why there's room for compassion around it with ourselves and with others because we might be doing something that we would deem stupid or judge as stupid in somebody else. But then when you really peel back the layers, there's usually something very tender about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And in some way, at least for me personally, I'm like, oh, I'm in good company. I don't have it all together. Everyone else doesn't either. And that is soothing and bonding in some kind of a way. And I think, or I wonder rather if part of, I don't know if it's just like hedonistic desires of people, but we want to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And it doesn't really feel good to (laughs) dive into the void, which we'll talk about. Like sometimes leaning into the void is actually the solution, which is so annoying, but we'll get to that in a minute. But I think temporarily it actually does feel better to do the behavior 
long term, it actually comes at a cost and it actually ends up wasting more time and energy to probably maintain unhealthy behaviors when we could just dive in and cope with what's actually happening. But temporarily, it feels way better to not actually have to address the void. As you were talking about that with your mom too, two other common presenting issues that I'll see uh, or voids that I'll see is grief that gets buried and not dealt with and trauma that gets buried and not dealt with, which can manifest themselves in a lot of different ways. And people won't even realize they didn't actually grieve the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or the loss of a, an assumed future that didn't come to fruition whatever the grief might be, sometimes that gets buried or trauma where people won't even realize that they actually went through something that did disturb them or make them feel threatened that stuck with them. And so half the time, I think the voids aren't, they're not intentional and they're not noticed whatsoever. So part of it's just like the, the mystery of uncovering the void to begin with. Yeah, I think that's really true. And those voids can come from very innocent, so to speak, places, you know, going through that trauma or grief or whatnot. That's not something that you bring upon yourself. Right. And so they come, they come out of nowhere and then it's this huge thing to deal with. And, um, I think I would, um, gently like, argue, so to speak, not argue, but say you said that it's probably not good in the long run. I would say it's definitely not good in the long run. Some of these behaviors that we do, um, as far as our avoidance, you know, you said it's, there's, um, most likely it's so much better to lean into that void or that vulnerability and really address it. And I would say that's absolutely true. It is just super duper hard. Um, it's very uncomfortable and, people don't have success with it a lot of times, unfortunately. And I think that's where a lot of that huge avoidance comes from is a lot of times we try to be vulnerable and it doesn't go well. And so our psyche or our mind or our emotions or all of the above say, don't go there. That was bad. Don't do that again. And so I think that gets us back to whatever our behavior is that's not serving us well. Um, Cause we had that bad experience or the vulnerability didn't go well. And it's a lot more comfortable to sit in our, um, our behavior. That's avoidant, you know? Yes, that's well said. And I think that kind of illuminates the full circle effect that probably happens where it goes back to the drinking, just drinking, and people are like, stop this behavior, stop the alcohol, stop the gambling, stop the addiction, but it doesn't address the thing underneath. But short term, it is addressing it. It's not a solution, but it is, it's helping the void. It's covering the void. It's making it not so painful. Cause I think I hadn't even thought about that point where people might have tried to cope or deal or work through that void and had a negative experience around it, which reinforces we probably should just keep that stuff way down. Mm -hmm. don't look at it. It's not there. I'm all good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it, um, it kind of goes to your example of like the relationship or the couple where the thirst is, I really want to be close and connected, but that doesn't work out so well, or they had a bad experience or they've tried and the door has been slammed in their face. And so to cope with that, instead of trying again, or trying a different approach or whatever it is, we go to that behave that avoidant behavior or whatnot. Um, and you're in your right that it's so short lived in its satisfaction because that deep longing and that deep thirst, 
is obviously never satisfied with our masking behaviors. You know, um, if you have that deep longing for connection with your partner and then you just, and we just kind of keep, um, avoiding it or avoiding our piece of it, um, we're never truly satisfied. But I think part of the thing that this brings up it, that's really hard is that, um, you know, we're all super human and pretty selfish at times. And so we have such a hard time overlooking other people's struggle. Um, and we have a hard time, um, well, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. I'm, what I'm trying to say is, um, we have a hard time not having our own needs met first, I think for most people. And so if we use kind of that example of the couple who might be struggling, they want this, uh, the one person is really seeking this connection and feeling like that can't happen. Um, I think there's the struggle of acknowledging what is my spouse or my partner, whatever, what is their thirst and what do they need? Um, and same thing in like friendships and family and all sort of, all sorts of other things. We have a hard time recognizing it in someone else first, because we really want our own recognized and our own met first. And I think that can be kind of a thing that gets in the way too, of figuring it all out and, addressing your own thirst and being mindful of other people's, you know, it makes it pretty complicated. It does. And then you throw, I don't know, some kids in there and some jobs in there and some commutes in there. And it just becomes very difficult to maybe prioritize the needs or the healing the voids of others and healing your own voids as well. Like I can certainly... I mean, justify why these things oftentimes linger for years and why those voids have a lot of power. Because I even wonder if sometimes the the actual longing that's in the void, like you were saying, for attachment or whatnot, that longing for something or that ache gets transferred to the behavior. So, for example, let's say it's about attachment or there's a trauma or a grief or missing somebody or something that the void is actually about. I wonder if that power that that carries gets transferred to I can't wait for my next drink I cannot wait to get to the casino I cannot wait to open my computer I cannot wait to open that app I cannot wait to see that person that gives me attention I just wonder if it transfers and gives the behaviors even more power because eventually we just need those behaviors to be okay Mm mm-hmm Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that does happen that it's, um, sort of like transferred energy to something else, you know, and it becomes, um, that's where I had this question when I was thinking about this is how much of what we do is a habit or how much of it is this deeply ingrained need. And when I, when I think about like what you just said, which I think is so true, um, it's even hard to kind of split that and decide maybe it started as this core need and void filling and whatnot, but then all of our energy goes into the way we get that need met. Um, so then it makes, to me, it it makes it like kind of cloudy in knowing is this habitual or is it still just that really deep down need that's buried? And I don't know. I think it's probably kind of situational and maybe the answer is both, you know, I don't know. I think it is both. My initial thought with that was habits are reinforced by our needs. 
But I, even more simply, like, I think habits are reinforced by what feels good. And it makes me just go back to, like, the basics of the reward loop. And you do something, it feels good, your brain sends off endorphins that remind you, oh, that's a good experience, do that again. Keep doing that thing, keep doing that thing, keep doing that thing. And from there, habits are formed. But then sometimes a reward loop can actually sabotage us because sometimes habits can be good even if they don't feel good, i.e. exercise. Maybe you don't feel like you want to do it, but then you start it and it actually is good for you and there's long-term benefits. But sometimes we don't want the things that are good for us. So that's where I think it does get cloudy. Habits get reinforced. Some habits are good and some habits are not so beneficial. Yeah, definitely. And then you're like, how do I figure out which ones are or are not, which is a million more podcast topics, but it kind of takes my brain to, like, if we were to hard sell how it's good to look at maybe that thirst behind whatever the habit is or the behavior is or the addiction is, like, why do you think it's beneficial for people to dive into that void that we're talking about and I'll kind of give like my thoughts on it first and we can play with that a little bit but my thought or at least what I'll say to clients a lot of the time is when you deal with the actual thing the actual need or the void or the thing that you're trying to not come in contact with you end up with clarity and energy efficiency And I say clarity because you kind of get to play detective and solve the mystery about why you're doing the thing and you can't stop it and you want to quit, but it never works. So you get clarity and you can actually address the issue one time through and really just hash it out and then you understand it for what it is versus it being super cloudy and vague. And the energy efficiency part, years and years and years and hours and dollar signs and a whole lot of other resources of energy can be spent on staying away from the void and so long term it's actually more efficient to just dive right into the void understand it swim around in it feel the feels of it work through it and then move on from it because then you get to leave it in the past and not carry it with you as you try and avoid it for your whole life so clarity and energy efficiency are sometimes Mm -hmm. my hard sells for clients yeah I love that I've never heard it explained that way before and I I might steal that from you (laughs) please do (laughs) um no I think that makes perfect sense and the other thing I don't know if you think of it this way but when you were talking about the energy efficiency the other thing that I was thinking is that it's so freeing you know like obviously we get the unique and awesome opportunity to see people just like you can just see it when it happens you know they experience that freedom and that maybe aha moment, or you can almost see the burden lift off of them at times. And, um, it was hard and scary work for them to get there. But when they get there, that freedom is, you know, indescribable. And I think that gives the energy too, right? Like you were talking that, um, long-term you can burn a lot of resources, money, time, blah, 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 in trying to fight it. Um, and I think that that's so that is so true and there's also probably a flood of increased energy just in your mind body soul in general when that void is actually addressed dealt with healed and in the past like you said 
um, it is hard work, but I think it's very worthwhile for those that choose to do it. Yes. And to bring it full circle and be a nerd here, it goes back to the reward loop where when people have actual positive experiences around coping with and dealing with the void, it does feel good. Like you were saying, and it teaches them, Oh, next time something goes on, I feel safety and security and future reward and actually dealing with it. That's a good thing to do. And that becomes the new habit is instead of avoiding things with behaviors that aren't so healthy they learn okay I'm tempted to do that let's just actually deal with the ish that's in front of me and I Mm -hmm. will feel better and that becomes the new habit Mm -hmm. yeah I think um this is also good and to kind of like wrap us up I think something to remember because there's so many questions I think that can come in with this and um trying to you know analyze our own thirst because we all have one and also deal with the ones that are close in our lives, whether it be friends, family, spouse, whoever. Um, we recognize um, the behavior, like we said, typically rather than other people's thirst. But there can potentially be like either a confusion or a conflict with do I deal with my own or do I deal with theirs? Or how do I deal with my own? How do I deal with theirs? Um, just kind of trying to analyze some of those questions. And obviously I'm not at all saying it's your job to deal with someone else's thirst. I'm more saying just being aware or trying to understand it as best you can. Um, but there's, um, the most power is, is dealing with our own first, I think, and then moving towards some empathy or understanding of someone else's, but really focusing on figuring out your own first. Alrighty. Well, thanks for joining us and we'll see you guys next time.